Hi, everybody. Welcome to Norma Jean Discovering Truths. I'm Nina Bosky. I'm Gary Vitaco Robles. And I'm Randall Libero. And this is episode seven, The White Piano, that we'll be talking about. And this is an intense episode as we get into more of Marilyn's abuse, but it also plays into the power of men and the studio system. As we know in the Me Too movement, Harvey Weinstein, will soon find out, is not a pioneer of this movement, especially in this episode. But the episode opens with Natasha Lightes, Marilyn's acting teacher, and they are at an auction wanting to buy back the white piano, the famous, infamous white piano. Let's get right into why the white piano is so important and why did we actually entitle this episode, The White Piano. Randall, you know, take it away on this one. If you've been listening to all the episodes before this, you'll know that Marilyn learned to, or I should say Norma Jean learned to play the piano uh, as a child. And that piano was in the house for the short period of time that she lived with Gladys, her mother. So that piano represents the first semblance of a normal home life that music was a part of, and she had a teacher she was taking piano lessons from. So the music part of it, the connection with her mother in a home that her mother and her shared, these are all things that are very important to Marilyn today. Uh, Gary, you want to add to that? To me, the white piano becomes a metaphor for Norma Jean's lost childhood. It's the psychological childhood that she had hoped for, a safe place with her mother, which was actually very short-lived. The piano provided some continuity in Marilyn's life. It, it first appears in her Doheny Drive apartment. She's photographed with it, and she carried it with her to New York, and it was displayed in her living room in her New York apartment until her death. So in many ways, the piano represented to Marilyn brief, positive moments of her childhood. Is Was, that also, Gary, the piano that we see here in pictures when you Google the white piano? Yes, that's the picture. Uh, the, the famous one of, is in Marilyn in the black sack dress with the white organza bow, and she's posing proudly next to the white piano. In fact, the, the window of her living room on the 13th floor in New York had to be removed so this piano could be hoisted from the street and brought into the apartment, uh, which must have been very exciting to onlookers at the time when uh, she and Arthur Miller moved in. And that. and that lovely white piano is in the hands, of course, of? Mariah Carey, who uh, she acquired it during the 1999 Christie's auction. So anyone who was fortunate to visit New York and see all of Marilyn's property on display for that auction would have seen the white piano. It was a happy memory when I saw it. In fact, I was able to reach out and touch it. Um, <laughs> and I didn't set off any alarms at Christie's. And so she has it. And she also named her, her daughter Monroe, right? Yeah, she has a child named Monroe. Yeah. So, you know, maybe, maybe in our future seasons, because we are looking at doing a music soundtrack, maybe Mariah will help us out on that white piano. Wouldn't that oh, be a nice full circle fun. moment? Her beautiful voice. Oh, yeah. So, so we took some liberties with the piano in the auction scene because Randall and I looked at my story, which was, of course, written by Marilyn, but ghostwritten by Ben Heck. And she talks about uh, trying to uh, acquire the piano back after it was lost when her mother was hospitalized and uh, was repossessed, I guess, at the time. And so she talks about going to auction and recovering it. But there's other versions of the story. Many people believe that Anna Lauer, 
Grace's aunt actually took the piano and continued making payments and saved it for Norma Jean. And it was in 2020 that, that we found maybe one of the earliest photographs of the white piano in Marilyn's possession. It's a black and white photograph of Marilyn, likely in her North Harper apartment, which she shared with Natasha Lightess very briefly in 1950. And you can see the Franklin piano in black in that apartment. So I don't know if it really was uh, remaining with those close to Maryland or during that period, if she really did acquire it back through auction at the time she was living with Natasha. It remains a, a mystery at this point. So the white piano is very symbolic in Marilyn's life. But the other thing that this episode represents, along with some of the others, these are intense episodes. It deals with the child abuse of Norma Jean. You know, she was not sexually abused just once, but multiple times. And we just hear this randomly out in the world that she was uh, abused, not just physically, but sexually. How did it start and with whom did it start with? Well, Marilyn leaves us a trail of clues. In my story, Marilyn actually names her first abuser. She names him Mr. Kimmel. And she also tells us that she was about eight years old. So she was eight years old in about 1934, which was when she was living with her mother. And her mother sublet the house to a British couple. We believe that the man's name was George Atkinson. And George Atkinson was possibly a stand-in for the actor George Arliss. During the period, there was a British actor by the name of Murray Kinnell, and he was also a stand-in for the actor George Arliss. And his name, Kinnell, is very close to the name of the man that Marilyn names as her offender, Mr. Kimmel. He, uh, he appeared in Public Enemy with James Cagney and Jean Harlow. So we're not really sure if the abuser is the tenant, who is named George Atkinson, he would have had access to Norma Jean. And after Gladys was hospitalized, Norma Jean continued to live with the British couple. So he would have uh, naturally had access to her. But the story that Marilyn documents is that she went to an aunt or a caregiver whom she called aunt, and she disclosed what had happened. And she was disbelieved. She was slapped and she was told, you know, how dare she make allegations against this star border whom the woman she told apparently depended upon for income. It was actually Roy Turner, who's well known in the Marilyn Monroe community. He was the first to suggest that Marilyn was actually covering and protecting Gladys, that it might've been Gladys uh, whom she disclosed the abuse to. Wow. And um, it also could have been Grace because Grace was someone whom she did call aunt and after her mother was hospitalized, Grace continued to care for her and pay the British couple to take care of Norma Jean. And we do hear, you know, Marilyn talk about life with the British couple being very tumultuous, lots of partying, people coming and going. So other people would have had access to her and that couple could have sublet the apartment to yet another person who could very likely have been Marie Cannell. So well, we'll never know for sure. I had another thought about that. If you've heard episode six, and we talk about this period of Marilyn's life also, when she's in the home with Gladys that the that Atkinson is boarding in the in the room. So as we write these and do the research, we're finding 
little inconsistencies and things. It occurred to me also that this may have happened in the home when she was seven and not eight. It may have happened then. And she's just saying it's, you know, trying, again, Marilyn's always trying to protect somebody when she gives stories and things. So it's really interesting. It's, it's hard to track this down exactly, you know, who and how and when. And it's very interesting that she should name him because later we'll find out talking about Harry Cohn, she refers to him in her book, but she actually names Kimmel. And I learned that Murray Kinnell, he actually died in 1954. And that was the year that Marilyn collaborated with Ben Heck on her book and um, it was serialized. So maybe she learned that he had died and now it was safe to use his name. Well, I think also I want to point out here is there was a lot of abuse that happened with Marilyn and some of the the details are a little murky, but we we do know that she was not just physically abused, but sexually abused. But I think one of the things that for anybody that's listening to this podcast, we have some resources on our website. If you go to behindtheicon.com, it's really important um, in today's age, unfortunately, back in the 1950s, 60s, back in the 1920s, even this has been going on and it's no different today. So if a child is withdrawing, if a child is not speaking, what are some of the signs that a parent or a loved one can kind of pay attention to? Because you know, like Norma Jean, she was protecting people and a lot of kids do. So what are some of the signs that somebody could be looking out for? Well, abrupt changes in behavior or affect, withdrawal, regression to earlier periods of development, loss of bladder and bowel control, self-injurious behavior, uh, depression. Oftentimes those are, are just so obvious to the family, but we also have to pay special attention to those who cover the symptoms, um, those who are uh, perfectionistic, children who are overachievers, who might be working really hard to keep the abuse uh, a secret and working very hard not to show the world any signs. But any abrupt change in a child's behavior, any injurious behavior withdrawal uh, needs to be questioned. And there's many professionals out there who can uh, assess children and guide well, families in taking the next step. I think it's very interesting when you said overachiever, because you think about Marilyn, the one thing that she did and did well is that she could dream the hardest, right? I mean, yes. she had that visualization. She's the ultimate law of attraction uh, manifester, right? Um, so I think that, you know, she definitely gave it her all. But at some point in everybody's life, it catches up with them as well. And I think in terms of these episodes, we wanted to be able to highlight them in a way that was creating the human side of Marilyn. Cause a lot of times she just gets projected on so much, you know, she's this beautiful glamorous figure or she's this tragic figure. And you realize just like all of us, she has a complex story and everybody to some degree has a complex story if you've lived long enough, right? So it's just, uh, it's just interesting how she protected a lot of the things that went on in her childhood without really talking to them, at least to the public, maybe with Dr. Greenson, she unveiled some of this stuff. So what else about Randall, what else about this episode jumps out at you? Well, we talked about the part where Marilyn in church was trying to reveal that she was abused. 
that shows that little Norma Jean knew this was something she was very uncomfortable with. She knew it wasn't right. She tried to tell people. And think about her circumstances. You know, she's living in circumstances where she really can trust no one uh, that's around her. In her young mind, she's trying to work through this experience and, and have it just make sense of it because she inwardly feels that there's something wrong and, and no one's listening to her. She, was she, didn't, she didn't have any caregivers who were able to emotionally respond to her and help her navigate through this and mitigate the impact of, of the abuse. She wasn't believed. She was blamed. She felt responsible. She felt shame. You know, when children are sexualized early in life, oftentimes they'll even engage in what we call abuse reactive behaviors, where now, now they, they begin to act out sexually, even with play with other children. And it's not the normal type of age appropriate exploration that's normal and natural for children. This is different because it was perpetrated upon them, and now they have knowledge that's beyond their development. And even Marilyn in her journals talked about uh, now being awakened with some sexual feelings. And in cases of, of molestation, when an adult violates that trust of a child and abuses a child, the touches have pleasurable sensations and that can be very confusing to a child. And their body is, is designed to respond in a positive way to those types of touches. Uh, that's something that can um, bring about lots of shame and confusion. And Norma Jean had no one to help her through any of this. So, you know, we really have to emphasize how that really shaped the rest of her life and probably her sexuality and the way that she viewed sexuality. Um, she was robbed of the choice of being sexual when she could make that decision herself. An older person who knew better violated her and changed her life from that point on. Well, it's really interesting, though, that she fast forward and she's now in an acting career and is at least back in the old Hollywood, classic Hollywood stage. The casting couch was alive and well. And you fast forward to the Harry Cohn scene, right? And that's a pretty intense scene. And today it would probably be called out, or at least it has the opportunity to be called out. I still think it's happening, even though we have a Harvey Weinstein that has been held responsible for a lot of men and probably women to some degree, but a lot of men who have taken advantage um, of have having a lot of power for somebody that, that doesn't. So why did we put this scene in, Randall? There's actually the scene that's previous to that is a scene where... Norma Jean, not yet Marilyn, joins the Blue Book Modeling Agency. So these are things that, as an adult, being out in public as an actress model, you know, then at this point, she's warned about this, about men's behavior, especially when you're alone with them by Emmeline Snively. So we put that scene in there to introduce the idea to the audience that this is something that Marilyn learned to protect herself over time. And so um, having had the childhood that she had and being aware of that, yes, it does happen because she's had the personal experience of it, she probably was very vigilant about how people behaved around her. I would imagine both the photographers and studio people and all that because this this was her experience. So. Yeah, she was a, a survivor, so she developed yeah. like a sixth sense of people, and she, she picked yeah. up on vibes, and there were people that she immediately took a disliking to that she felt she couldn't trust, and I really thought, I think that was her gut. 
we well, talked about this in one of the preludes. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about this because that's where a lot of the confusion gets in because you hear this where she used her body, her sexuality, which she certainly did by, you know, turning herself into Marilyn Monroe. But at the same time, she had very distinct boundaries. So talk about a dichotomy, why there's such a dichotomy with her and how people perceive her. Well, much of the information about Marilyn and the casting couch and Marilyn's um, sexuality is definitely tabloid and not really based upon what we know about her. There really isn't a lot of specific evidence about Marilyn and the casting couch. And um, had she ambitiously used the casting couch, I think her climb to fame wouldn't have been as long as it was. You know, she started at Fox at the age of 20, and she really didn't become a star until 26, 27 years old. So, you know, by those who were working with her at the time said that she was working very hard and not taking any favors from anyone. And Marilyn herself many times said that she wasn't kept, that she always paid for herself. And she herself in my story talks about this executive who tries to seduce her on his yacht and uh, she talks about the time period of this, which would have been when she was terminated from Fox the first time. And Joe Schenk, who was uh, an executive at Fox, sent her to another studio mogul. So um, certainly, if she were uh, engaging in favors with Schenk, she would have probably stayed at Fox. So the person that we know Schenk really directed her to was, was Harry Cohn at Columbia Studios, who Marilyn refers to as Mr. X. And I remember when I outlined the treatment of that interaction and brought it to Randall to further collaborate. Randall, I remember your reaction was how creepy it was. This is 1948, and Marilyn had just finished Ladies of the Chorus, which was her first really major role. And uh, if you've never seen that film, I'd recommend going and watch it. It's a sweet little movie. And you get to see Marilyn playing a character. She's not playing the Marilyn persona. And uh, she gets to sing in that movie and dance. And that's the first time that she's really doing that. So she was very proud of that experience. And, and she worked very hard on it. And um, the scene is when she goes and sees Harry Cohn. He, he calls her in because they're discussing, uh, you know, her contract. And we, you know, we, we outlined the trinkets. And that's all based upon research. Um, you know, we did our research on Harry Cohn, and he did keep perfume and lady stockings and other things that he would bribe young actresses into sexual contact to further their careers at his studio or to gift them these trinkets. And so we tried to create a lot of tension in that scene in which Marilyn is asserting her boundaries and resisting. And this goes along with the way she described it in my story. It involves uh, an invitation to go on a yacht. We do know that Harry Cohn had the yacht, the Joe Bella. And when Marilyn makes references to his wife coming along, Cohn makes it very clear that this isn't an invitation to include his wife. And when she uh, refuses his advances, she's pretty much told you'll never work in this town again, or at least not in this studio. We also have to give a really big shout out to the actor who played Harry Cohn, Vince Malabin. When we heard that scene, guys, didn't all of us go, ooh, that's mm -hmm. kind of creepy. I was the in the room crawls. with him. Yeah. yeah. And so, that's what we intended. So so the, the reality is Marilyn eventually 
had the last laugh because when she returned to Fox and became a great star, she claims to have sarcastically sent him a signed picture and, and she inscribed it to my great benefactor. <laughs> Harry Cohn. A few years later in 1951, when she met um, Arthur Miller, he came out to Los Angeles with Elia Kazan and they went to Columbia Studios and they were going to see Harry Cohn to pitch uh, Miller's script of The Hook. Um, at the time, Kazan was dating Marilyn and so she wanted to come along and she posed as their secretary to take notes. But the reality was she wanted to go back into that office and um, see Harry Cohn one last time. And um, while the negotiations were going on for that script, Cohn allegedly was beginning to recognize Marilyn. And so that scene will appear in a future season. So I wonder if she wore the brunette wig and did the Zelda Zonk impersonation <laughs> <laughs> when she went in with them, as she was known to do, play this kind of you know secretary type with the probably with the glasses and the wig and the whole thing. Well, she apparently brought um, sharpened pencils and a stenographer's pad. Well, guys, this is actually getting up to a wrap here. Uh, Randall, you want to give us a little tidbit of the future episodes and what's to come because you actually got a wonderful letter from Anna Lauer, some things from an auction yourself. So tell us a little bit about that. I was able to win a lot of some material from that Marilyn had that has to do with her relationship and correspondence with Anna Lauer. And you'll hear that entire part of her life in future episodes. And it's a part of her life that really doesn't get shown or talked about. But Anna is buried in the same area or close to where Marilyn's script is in Westwood. Uh, so, and Marilyn used to actually go and visit Anna's grave, and that's a whole other story, yeah. let me tell you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, but the part of this communication that came in this lot, and I wasn't even aware of it, I saw something to it, but it's actually a handwritten list of all the places that Gladys was institutionalized after the events in episode seven. And is and this in Grace's handwriting? Pencil, pencil, and it's in Grace's handwriting. Mm. Wow. And to see all the places where they lived. I'm reading right off of here. It says, first physical breakdown at home of George Atkinson. Here's the Atkinson name yes. again. 6812 Arbol Drive, Hollywood. First part of January, 1935. Committed to county for a short time. And then there's a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. And here's one very, <laughs> when I read it, I had a really, is this what this says? Yes, it does. And it says it uh, moved with me, and there's an arrow, and it says Grace McKee Goddard at 2595 Graciosa Drive in Hollywood several days later. And then underneath them, with smaller handwriting, it says, went berserk a week or so later, tried to kill me, my present husband and nurse, Mrs. Julia Bement. Wow. So I don't think anybody has ever noted that before anywhere in anything on Maryland, that event where Gladys tried to kill three people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, the, there's, there's so much information that's coming to light uh, with these things that come from auctions. And our research continues as, yeah. as we write the exactly. series, the more and more pieces become available through the auction houses. And even if Randall and I can't acquire them, um, we can certainly peruse the auction catalogs and see pages of diaries and other documents, which mm -hmm. we can still use in our research. So, so it's interesting that, you know, so much has been written about Marilyn, this great legend of her life, which is not always based upon 
the truth, but the truth always has a way of revealing itself. And now, so many decades after her death, all of these pieces of the puzzle are, are coming to light. And so now when we, we research Marilyn's life, we, we get a, an, an entirely different picture of many of the events. Well, I think what also starts to happen is we start to humanize her. And I think that's one of the wonderful legacies that we could do as uh, producers, as writers, as biographers, mental health experts, you know, all of this comes into play that we really take what we do seriously. We're not just trying to sensationalize Marilyn because, you know, the reality is, is that she suffered like so many of us do and have in our in our lives that i think that's what makes her very relatable and that's uh, going to be a job for future seasons too as we as we come back obviously this is going to be multi-season we're just in her childhood so there's a lot more to come and we're just really excited to have you along with us on this journey you know until next time guys let's uh, hold a good thought for marilyn but let's hold a good thought for yourself <laughs> 